Amen. You may be seated. We continue this morning where we are in the book of Jude. We are in the one chapter, of course, Jude being a one chapter book, the first to the last book of the Bible. And as always, we encourage you to keep a copy of God's word open on your lap. You may not be used to that, but as you think about uh, memorizing Jude, as many of you are trying to do, uh, we know that memory is enhanced when we both can hear it and read it at the same time. That's why if you're like me, you've made a, a recording of your own voice reading through the book of Jude and you're listening to it every day so that you reinforce what you're trying to remember. These are all good tools to use, but it's just good for us to have a copy of God's word open as we hear his word preached. So please turn, and I get to say this every week because there's only one chapter, 1216 of your pew Bible is where you'll find it. This really does mark, I believe, the end, these verses, that is, the end of Jude's unmasking of these false teachers whom he has described so clearly in verse 4 of this section uh, or of this book. Uh, you may remember those words, I'm sure you do, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They were ungodly people who pervert the grace of God, our God, into sensuality and who deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That was, of course, an initial summary statement of who these false teachers were. And then he goes on, as we know, to graphically illustrate over the next 12 verses, the verses we've studied over the past few weeks, what the nature, the character, the real people that these false teachers were. And his description in verse 4 is in, uh, sort of an introduction to what he will do in these verses when he tells us there that they were ungodly people. Now, if you have other versions than the ESV, which is in the pew, uh, there is a cadence, really, uh, a sort of march that happens in these verses. And when I was first converted to Christ at 19, the first Bible I was given was the New American Standard Bible. And I first memorized these verses in that version. And that version reads this way, and you can hear the cadence a little bit, perhaps a little bit better, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You can't miss Jude's point. These false teachers are ungodly. They are ungodly. They do everything they do in an ungodly way, which makes them themselves ungodly. What Jude is saying here, theologically, is that sin, their sin, their fallenness in Adam, touches everything that they do, pollutes everything. And what awaits, and what awaits the ungodly, as Jude will write, and as he has already said, if they do not repent, is the dreadful and terrible judgment of a holy God. That's his point in these verses. As Newton said in that great hymn that we so often sing, at his call the dead will awake and rise to life from earth to sea. All the powers of nature shaken by his looks prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? Newton said we ought not to meet Jesus on that great day 
remaining in our sin, but rather we ought to turn to Christ. That is ultimately Jude's point in these verses, and we'll stand and read them together as I ask you now to please stand, and we'll read verses 14 through 16. This is God's holy word. It was also about these, remember, false teachers, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness they have that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is God's word. All flesh is like the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come before this passage again, highlighting the judgment of a holy God, We pray that you would give us sober minds and hearts to receive the truth of your word, to hear its warnings, to hear its comforts and its promises found in Christ, and in the end, by your grace alone, to be found in him. And we pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Lots of talk of judgment. We prayed about that this morning as elders, knowing that such sermons that focus so often, it seems, for the last several weeks on the judgment of God can be rather heavy and hard to listen to. I'm always desiring that as we go through these verses like this, that we also highlight the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ, which spares us from that judgment which is to come. But I think one of the main points, undeniably, as we read through the book of Jude, is that he is reminding us in our text this morning and throughout his brief letter that God's judgment is not something that he has kept hidden from mankind. It's always been something that the Lord has revealed very clearly in his word and throughout all of history, and that from the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, immediately after the fall, there's a pronouncement of God's judgment against sin. And that pronouncement goes beyond Adam and Eve and highlights the union that all mankind in Adam have with him. And because we are united to Adam in his fall, his rebellion and sin, we are also united to Adam in deserving the judgment which he deserved because of that fall. And then shortly after, God gives a marvelous and terrifying illustration of that judgment, which he promised at the fall. That is his worldwide judgment against mankind, often taken rightly in all of scripture as typical of the final judgment that is still to come. In fact, it seems that the Bible in every place is moving the reader to consider the end of the ages when the final judgment of God will come. 
That's certainly true in all of the prophets, the writings of the Old Testament. Anytime temporal judgments are brought to bear upon God's people for their sinful rebellion against him, the prophets, as we saw in Isaiah, will often relate or conflate the judgment temporally with the judgment still to come at the end of the age. He's doing that for a reason. It's a warning a warning to the people that they would avoid, escape that judgment still to come. And in the midst of all of this, of course, there are the promises of God that there is one coming who will, in fact, spare us from that judgment if we are indeed found in him. And it was certainly true if you read carefully through the teaching ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, that he so often warned of the judgment of God that is coming Uh, depicting himself as the one who will come, as we'll see later, with myriads of angels to judge the living and the dead. It's what we confess when we say the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed as well. Now, one of the clearest expressions in my mind that can be seen in the Bible happens in the very beginning of the church's songbook, uh, the Book of Psalms. Here, almost every scholar believes and sees Psalm 1 as a summary of the entire Psalter. It's a prefiguring of everything that's going to take place in the Psalter, a reminder of the great themes that are reflected there. And what is it that we have in this Psalm? It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? A stunning picture of the way of the righteous and of the way of the wicked, laid out for everyone to see, to see very clearly a reminder to walk on the one path and to avoid the other path. One path leads to great blessing, to growth and peace and prosperity. The other path leads to a life that is blown away like the chaff, a life that in the end will perish. You remember the psalm, it's beautiful, and how can we not remember it as every year at VBS we hear it again by the children as they go through and recite the psalm. Blessed is the man, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He, that is the righteous, are like a tree planted by the streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous or the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Perish, 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 perish. Remember that, every child, no matter how many, perish, perish. Heads bowed. Helps us to remember, though, doesn't it? They will perish. The way of the wicked will perish, but not so the way of the righteous. The wicked or the ungodly will not stand in the judgment. To stand means to hold one's place. It's a picture of remaining grounded after the storm has passed. The ungodly will not be able to remain under the storm and through the storm of the wrath of a holy God against sin and sinners, for the way of the wicked will surely perish. And that is what Jude is up to in our text. He's pointing that out very, very clearly. It's a way to end this unmasking of the false teachers so that there is no 
escape from the conclusion he wants us to have, which is this is not the way we ought to walk. We ought not to believe them. We ought not to follow in their ways. We ought to avoid them. And later he's going to talk about how we ought to engage in this great battle that they were facing every day. So three points, because Jude loves threes, and so do I. Three points every pastor does. The first is this. Jude gives us first a reminder, a reminder of his coming judgment. A reminder of his coming judgment. He's already spoken about it. He's already revealed it. He's already been said that these people have been marked out for this condemnation long ago. But God now reveals himself very clearly in this way through Jude that he is coming in judgment. And he does something here rather striking by referring to what we must believe was a well-known tradition again in that day handed down probably for generations from the earliest times. And I say earliest times because he's talking about the life of an early, early character in the Bible by the name of Enoch. How do we know, Jude says, how do we know that God will judge these false teachers for certain? Well, he says, go back all the way to the beginning, to something that you know well, something outside of the Bible itself, that there is one named Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and you have to include Enoch and Adam to get the seven, who so spoke under the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, he's talking about a prophecy called the prophecy of Enoch, or Enoch 1, if you will. Who is this Enoch? He is, again, the seventh from Adam. When Enoch had lived, as we heard earlier, 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he had fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all of the days of Enoch were 365 years. Very convenient number. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God had taken him or took him. You know the story. They were walking along together. Love to tell it. But you know the story. One day they were walking together as they were, and God looked to Enoch and Enoch to God, and God said, listen, we are closer to my home than we are to yours, so just come home with me. And that's what he said, because he was a godly man, and he walked with God. Now, we have no record in the Bible of this prophecy, of course, that is recorded here by Jude. He references Enoch prophesying, being a prophet, speaking of that which is to come. We, again, have no biblical record of this. But as we've noted before, Jude quotes it authoritatively. There's no reason to believe that this isn't actually something true. And there is no diminishing of the Bible, the authority of God's word, for Jude to do this. Because everything that is said in these words of prophecy by Enoch are borne out in the rest of Scripture. Remember, we've just reviewed it in so many places. God's coming judgment is announced. And so it's not uncommon for Jude to quote something like this. And he's saying basically this. Listen, not just the Bible, but even your own traditions, which are not in themselves authoritative, speak about this judgment. We ought not to ignore it. And so Matthew Henry says this, and I love what he says here. He says, of the prophecy of Enoch, we have no mention made in any other part or place of Scripture. Yet, he says, now it is Scripture that there was such prophecy. 
One plain text of scripture is proof enough of any one point that we are required to believe, especially when relating to a matter of fact. But in matters of faith, necessary saving faith, God has not seen fit, blessed be his holy name that he has not, to try us so far. There is no fundamental of the Christian religion, truly so-called, which is not inculcated over and over in the New Testament, by which we may know what the Holy Ghost does, and consequently on what we ought to lay the greatest stress. His point is simply this. We don't need this prophecy, but God gives it to us through Jude as a reminder, yes, this is so well known, so clear. In either case, what Henry says is right, yet now it is in the scriptures. And what does he prophesy? Well, what he prophesies very clearly is that there will be a time yet to come when the Lord will come with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute his judgment, literally with myriads of his holy ones, or literally, even more literally, with his holy myriads. Calvin says regarding the 10,000 here, he he says 10,000, as Daniel also mentions myriads of angels in Daniel 7, in order that the multitude of the ungodly may not, like a violent sea, overwhelm the children of God, but that they may think of this, that the Lord will sometime collect his own people, a part of whom are dwelling in heaven, unseen by us, and a part are hid under a great mass of chaff. I love that statement by Calvin. He comes so that we would not be overwhelmed by the myriad of the ungodly, but that God with 10,000 of his angels, which I think is a reference to all of the hosts of heaven, that he will come and deliver his people. Daniel, in writing in Daniel 7, says, A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Jesus himself refers to this idea of the coming of angels, referring to himself as the one who will come with the angels. When telling his disciples in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man, Jesus, Daniel's favorite term for the Messiah, that Jesus takes to himself, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You see, there's the promise. It's the very promise that Jude says Enoch prophesied long ago. Now, Enoch, as you heard read from Genesis, is the father of Methuselah. Methuselah literally means his death shall bring forth. Really, I think referring to when the death of Methuselah happens, then will come the judgment of God through Noah and the destruction of the earth uh, by water. 
something that God promised never to, go, to do again. And that judgment, again, prefigures the judgments to come. In fact, all the judgments find their root here in the judgment of God in Noah's day because of the wickedness and the ungodliness of men who lived upon the earth. That is the reason for mentioning it here. It's been this way from the beginning. And God has never hidden it. He's always promised that he will judge the ungodly. Another writer says Jude has proven from this, the Old Testament, in the case of the mighty redemptive acts of God. He's already talked about the Exodus and the Passover. He has shown the Old Testament to foretell of the certain fate of false teachers. And he has shown that even Jewish legends like Enoch make certain points which are best understood in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ, who himself saved a people. This same Jesus will not only save us from the wrath to come, but he will protect us from those false teachers who seek to deceive us and to exploit us. And that's the ultimate point, isn't it? Why Jude uses these extra biblical sources. They were well known to his readers to show that God is faithful to deal with false teachers and to protect his people from their false teachings and their ungodly ways. And so he reminds them simply through this evidence in verse 14 that God will indeed judge. Now, what is the reason Secondly, for his judgment. Why is he coming to judge? Well, verse 15, I think, tells us these three verses are divided into the three points. He's coming to execute all judgment on all to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, this is not a summary of everything that they've done which is wrong and deserving of judgment. It's not everything listed out here, but it is a wonderful picture of the bent of their lives. They are ungodly people. The prefix means anti-God or against God. They are by nature enemies of God. That's what it means to be ungodly. And throughout scripture, the word is used this way over and over again to describe those who are ultimately the enemies of God. This really is the root of everything that we think of with regard to sin. Everything man does is sinful because man himself is ungodly. That's the point that Jude is making. They are ungodly. It's the doctrine that we refer to as total depravity, not that we are as bad as we possibly could be. You've heard that before. That's a wrong understanding of total depravity, that we are as bad as we possibly could be in every area. That's just not right. God, in his mercy, restrains us. Sometimes we see that restraint cast off, and we see this breaking forth of ungodliness and horrible acts of sin that we read about and hear about, but in general, God restrains our depravity in his mercy. But total depravity means that every part of us, every part of our being, every faculty that we have is touched and tainted by sin. 
We so often say, and we've said it here from this pulpit many times, we are not sinners because we happen to sin. As if it were possible to become no longer sinners, if that were possible, it's not. But we are not sinners because we happen to sin. We sin because we are at our root and core sinners. And that's exactly what Jude is saying here, to convict all of the ungodly of all of their deeds that themselves were ungodly, which they have committed in an ungodly way. So every aspect of their lives, how they do what they do, what they do, their thoughts, their words, their intentions, all of them are anti-God, against God. And that's where the heart of this is. This is not merely false teachers who are seeking to lead God's people astray. That's bad enough. That's what Jude's writing about. This is a people whose very orientation are opposed to God. His right to rule, his creative rights over them, his sovereign rights as Lord and King of all. That's what ungodly people do. And the Bible says that that's who you and I are by nature apart from Christ. That's what we were before Christ drew us to himself. So this doctrine here, this is the picture of the reason why God is pouring out his judgment. They are opposed to him, and that's borne out at the very end, that these ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Think of the days of Noah, how Noah was mocked because of what he was doing in obedience to God. Think of the prophets and how they were mocked because they proclaimed the commandments of God. Think of Moses and Aaron and Miriam and how they were hated and despised because they followed God's commandments. In all of those cases, it was not merely men or women that these people were setting themselves against. It was God who stood behind them as the final authority. And so the reason for his judgment is because, in summary, they are simply ungodly, anti-God, opposed to God, and deserving of his wrath. Now that's, again, a summary way, again, of saying it. But now in the third point, in verse 16, Jude gives us a very helpful illustration And this, perhaps, is more clear that it's not a thoroughgoing illustration defining everything that they were guilty of. But it does highlight, I think, what are key elements of ungodliness and why ungodliness is what it is. Listen to these words. He describes them this way. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, we could debate why he chose these things. I think they relate to speaking against God. We'll see that in a moment. But I think it's a a very clear picture of the heart of ungodliness and unbelief. Again, grumbling, complaining, malcontents, uh, focused against God, their speech against God, this idea of following their own sinful desires. That's why they pervert the grace of God and lead it and allow it to lead to licentiousness or ungodly living. They're loudmouth boasters against all authority, ultimately God himself. 
and they show favoritism to gain advantage for themselves, for their own selfish gain. All of these we've seen earlier in Jude, and they are wonderful pictures, aren't they, of what exactly is behind their ungodliness. This idea of grumbling and being a malcontent or a complainer, I think, is rooted in Numbers 14. It's a picture of what God's people did In the Old Testament, the Lord spoke to Moses, that chapter says, and to Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, you will not, you will not come into the land that I swore that I would make you dwell. That is, except Caleb and Joshua. To murmur, to grumble, as the word is translated here, means to speak against another with hatred and impatience. The word here is from a root that means to grunt as a fat swine. Very, very interesting picture, isn't it? To grunt as a fat swine. Now imagine a fat swine living in the mud, desiring more food and just grunting and complaining and murmuring. This is done historically against both God and man. I think ultimately its picture here is against God. Many of us may remember The old days, when we were raised by parents who uh, very strongly disciplined us, perhaps uh, spanked us or whatever the case may be, uh, dealt with us as we ought to have been dealt with. So much today is tempered by the culture in which we live. Everyone is fearful to do those things which God's word clearly teaches and commands. But I remember, I remember very clearly uh, my father being a man of few words Uh, but of an awesome presence in my life. And I remember that if I ever grumbled, and you know what grumbling is, right? Grumbling is not shouting. It's saying something under under your voice or under your breath. It's when your parents tell you to do something, you say, like that, right? I remember, maybe the one time I did that, (laughs) I'm sure I did it more than once, my father not being well-pleased with me, as Mr. Whiteman would say. He was not well-pleased with me. There's great offense when children do that to their parents. There's great disrespect and dishonoring. I didn't understand at the time. There's actually great hatred expressed in that when we pretend outwardly to follow and obey, and yet under our breath we say, and the anger seethes. That's, that's what's here, the murmuring and complaining and the grumbling against God. It's disrespect that deserves punishment. But they were also complainers. And this is a word that even has more meaning here and, and helps us understand why God's wrath is opposed to it. This word refers specifically to dissatisfaction of one's lot in this world. Think of how many times the people of Israel complained to Moses and to the Lord 
about being taken out of Egypt where they had so much, good food, good drink, etc. They believed themselves worthy of greater things, better things, and they despised, you can see it in the story, they despised the Lord's good gifts, his providence, and ultimately his deliverance of them from Egypt. On this, Matthew Henry says, such are very weak at least, and for the most part, they are very wicked. They murmur against God and his providence, against men and their conduct. They are angry at everything that happens, never pleased with their own state and condition in the world, as not thinking it good enough for them. They walk after their own lusts, their will, their appetite, their fancy, are their only rule and law. We are to note that those who please their sinful appetites are most prone to yield to their ungovernable passions. That is so true, and that's the picture of these who Jude describes as ungodly men, grumblers, complainers, malcontents, seeking only what they desire, loudmouth boasters against any authority, including God himself, and always seeking their own advantage by showing favoritism to those who can help them gain that. One writer, as he comes to the end of this, and by end of it I mean really verses 5 through 16, it's been pretty oppressive, pretty terrible to read through. I hope you see that it reminds us of the day in which we live. I think we see it all around us in the world in which we live, people seeking their own ends, living according to their own desires, complaining about everything, grumbling ultimately against God. Mark Johnson says this in his helpful commentary, there is something quite chilling about a section of the Bible like this. It is almost impossible to read it without our blood running cold. But is this not exactly what it was meant to do? Jude is not scaremongering. Neither is he engaging in the character assassination of those with whom he cannot agree. He is simply declaring the truth. In a way that is perfectly consistent with the rest of God's word, he is warning those who are spiritual con artists that it is ultimately God who does not judge by appearances, but who looks at the heart with whom, that they, must, with whom they must reckon. If that is how the Lord judges, then those who are his children must learn to look beyond appearances too. Remember Jude's whole point, you've got to recognize them for who they are. They may look like they're this way, prim and proper, teaching, really attractive, great voices, great sermons, whatever the case may be. But underneath, take off the mask, what do you have? You have the ungodly who are grumblers and complainers, who hate God, who despise his providence, who are never satisfied with the good gifts God gives. That's the picture, and we ought to be warned, and Jude warns us well. Well, three things then as we close. Again, threes are helpful. First of all, I want you to see here, I think this is intentional on the Lord's part ultimately, but certainly on Jude's part as he writes this letter. He sets before us here, if you haven't seen it already, the pattern of godliness that we are to follow I don't think it's a surprise, or it shouldn't be to us, or an accident that Jude chose this passage, this prophecy, well known to his readers, uh, 
from the life of Enoch, the seventh from Adam. He's quoting an extra biblical book. He's not putting it on par with scripture. He's using it as an illustration. Even these writings that are not biblical in the sense of they are not part of God's canon, his Bible, even these describe God as being a God who will judge the ungodly. But he quotes from Enoch's life. Enoch walked with God. He was a holy man who pursued holiness, who walked with God, don't miss this, in the context, in the world that was ungodly. That's his point. He's just like the readers to whom Jude is writing. He's just like you and I. He's, reading, he's writing to a people who live in the midst of an ungodly people, an ungodly world. And the lesson is this, by the grace of God, we are able to live a godly life, a God-honoring life in the midst of this fallen world. We don't have to fall back into ungodly acts and living in ungodly ways. Enoch didn't, not because he was special, because he was like level four in Christianity. He was an ordinary follower, ultimately, of Jesus Christ by promise, seeking to honor the God who called him. And he lived in the midst of an ungodly world in a godly way. And he enjoyed the blessings of Psalm 1, of fellowship with God and the happiness and the joys which God himself brings and gives to those who are his. That was not always, or that was always the way it was, I should say, from the beginning. It remains the same today. People live this way in an ungodly way because they just simply live without any fear of God before their eyes. They are living without any thought of God, without who he is, who he revealed himself to be in creation, in his word, in the testimony of his son, Jesus Christ. We are not to live that way. We are to live with an eye to the judgment to come. As Peter says, as so many other places say, what kind of people ought we to be, Peter says, but those who are godly, living in a godly pattern of life. And brothers and sisters, that is possible, though you will stand out like a sore thumb, but it is possible and it will bring praise to God. And in fact, the book of First Thess or Second Thessalonians says that the very fact that you live godly lives in this ungodly age is a testimony to the ungodly, that they will be judged. And so you will stand, as Paul writes elsewhere, as a constant reminder that there is a judgment to come. And God often uses that, does he not, to draw then people to faith in Jesus. So you have a pattern, I think, in Enoch's life, this prophecy, a pattern of godliness. You also clearly have a path that we are to avoid, a path to avoid. The characteristics of the people in Moses' day, which I think this harkens back to, especially considering the verses earlier, the false teachers of Jude's day. These are the path, or this is the path, that Jude calls us to avoid. And in fact, the Bible always speaks about those examples in this way. The, the classic passage in 1 Corinthians 10 is very, very helpful, isn't it? 
Now these things, some of which Jude is referring to here, took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 20,000 fell in a single day, or 23,000. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example But they were written for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall, for no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. It's not only a pattern of godliness, but it's a path here to avoid. And then thirdly, and I think perhaps framing all of this and arriving where we need to arrive, is that there is a promise here to cling to, isn't there? Now, you may not see it clearly here, but I hope you will see it clearly after this. I don't believe it was an accident at all. Uh, again, uh, that God is allowing Jude to write what he writes here, to use the word which is so familiar in the Bible, the word ungodly. It's in this context that we read one of the greatest promises in all of the Bible. You heard it read earlier as you responded in faith to God's call to confession. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what he is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of this blessing, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What a promise. What hope for people like you and like me here this morning. And I hold out that promise to you. As you sit here this morning listening to these words of judgment, you need to hear these words of promise and of hope that the Lord gives us as well. God alone justifies the ungodly. He alone is able to do it. How, you ask? He's able to do it because of what Jesus has done, what we're going to celebrate in just a few moments at this table, which is a testimony of God's justification of the ungodly because of the work of Jesus Christ. Joseph Hart's great hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, not the righteous. Because it's sinners Jesus came to call. 
It's sinners that Jesus came to call. That's the promise here, isn't it? How do we escape the judgment that Enoch prophesied so long ago that God has revealed from the very beginning? It is only as we flee to Christ and are found in him. Our age is not unlike Jude's age or Noah's age or any other age in which mankind has lived. In fact, have you ever heard the saying? Remember, I like to look up sayings now, so you're probably going to get one of these every week. The more things change, the more they stay the same. It was apparently first spoken by a French writer and critic in the 19th century. It's probably been made more famous, especially in America, because it's the name of one of Bon Jovi's greatest hits, The More Things Change. And it's also a sentiment captured in the book of Ecclesiastes, which reminds us that there is nothing new under the sun. They have a line, that is, Bon Jovi has a line in that song, it's the same old story, but it's told in a different way. All throughout history, from the very beginning, God has told the story of his coming judgment against the ungodly, but he has told it in many, many different ways. But man just will not listen. He will not pay attention. Second Peter, you heard read earlier, they overlook the fact that the heavens were created and existed, formed long ago out of the water, and they were destroyed by the water, just like God said they would be. They just ignore that. They constantly say, where is the promise of his coming? Jude simply is reminding us of this fact. God will judge the ungodly. That story has been told in many ways over many years, and yet the ungodly continue to ignore its warning. Let us not be like them. Flee to Christ, through whom the Lord justifies the ungodly. For surely the ungodly will not stand in the judgment. They have no place. They will not hold their place. But those who are in Christ will stand. We will stand not because we're stronger and better than others, but because we have someone who stands next to us. In fact, we have someone in whom we are standing and united, justified, sanctified, and redeemed by his precious blood. And that is the hope. And that's how we avoid the judgment that is surely coming. May God grant you the grace to believe it, even as God has proclaimed it in Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Father, you have not been silent. From the beginning, you have warned of the judgment to come. And from the beginning, from the moment man fell into sin, you have given a promise of a redeemer of one who would come through whom you will be able and can and surely have justified the ungodly. We thank you for this great hope and the way in which we will come now to this table to enjoy this hope, to remember it, to rejoice in it, give you thanks for it. And we pray it all with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you are seated, sorry. Sometimes we mess that up. We have certain sayings as pastors, and we just put them in different places. How about this? The elders can now...